Today's message is categories of Christian teaching. Uh, the deacons have asked me to preach a couple of messages uh, for you as the congregation. And before I tell you what the topic is, uh, that's going to come the next two weeks. All right. But today I want to lay a foundation uh, so that as we go through uh, those messages in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to better understand why the deacons and I are asking you to have a conversation with us as a church on those particular topics. All right, so today uh, they're basically just going to be in chart form. I don't know if you can read that, but I'll explain these charts to you. Um, What was the title of the message? Categories of Christian Teaching. All right, there we go, in case you forgot. Now, I have uh, four different columns up there. And as we go through this, I want to uh, be able to give a little bit of credit to a friend of mine. Um, The bulk of the material uh, belongs to his series uh, entitled, What is a Fundamentalist? And you can go to uh, their website and you can download his charts. All right. So that's why I didn't hand them out to you today. Uh, You can go to the Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco. You can listen to that series Uh, It's a little bit different than what we're going to do, but uh, I felt that this was an appropriate uh, way to approach this particular setting. But to start with, would you go to Matthew chapter 15 and look at verse 9? Matthew chapter 15 and verse When Jesus was on this earth in his ministry, he had confrontation with the religious teachers because they were putting people in spiritual bondage by elevating their opinions, uh, their speculations, and their thoughts as that of being equal with the teachings of God. And so he comes right to it. um, In verse 9, and he says this, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So if you missed that reference, that was Matthew 15, 9. Uh, Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So what they did was uh, these Jewish uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, so forth, is they took the oral tradition uh, that existed from the rabbis' Uh, teachings, and especially during the Babylonian captivity, they would say, okay, Rabbi so-and-so, how do you look at this Old Testament passage? And he would teach them, and so then they collected all of the oral teachings and they put them in writing. They called it the Babylonian Talmud. And it's basically the, the way that the rabbis looked at passages of Scripture, but now they're not Scripture themselves. And then they also had things called the Mishnah, and there are other Jewish writings that they put on the same level of authority with the writings of Moses. Moses, right here, what the rabbis thought, right here with Moses. And sometimes even more important. And this especially came into conflict with Jesus because as Lord, he created the Sabbath day. 
but then their interpretations and how they took a scriptural truth and then applied it, the application actually became more important than the scriptural teaching where it was set right side by side. And so when we come to categories of Christian teaching, uh, column number four is what I call preferences. Uh, Column number three would be speculations. Column number two would be logical conclusions. And then column number one is strictly scriptural teaching. Thus saith the Lord. And so we can understand they're very clear simple, direct statements in the Bible of things that we need to believe or things we need to do. Column number two, then, is logical conclusions. Well, that's when we move away from direct, clear biblical teachings, and we say, well, now, based on what we find in the text, this makes sense to go about it this way. So we're, what kind of a church are we? Congregational, what's our denominational label? Baptist. All right. But is the Baptist denominational label, is that found in Scripture, thou must worship at a Baptist church? No. All right. But we have some logical conclusions to why we hold Baptist distinctives, such as immersion, going completely under the water and then being raised up out of the water. It best portrays the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Uh, the priesthood of the believer. Um, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Okay, well, that's something that we can see directly in Scripture, but what does a priest do, and how do we make that apply on the local church? Well, that's where we come into column number two as something about our distinctions, okay? But now, uh, column number three might be speculations, such as something like this, all right? I think that the Greek text that you can find from the country of Syria is better than the Greek text that you might find from the country of Egypt. That's speculation. What the Bible taught was God preserved his word. Does it say where he preserved his word? No. Does it say how he preserved his word? No, it just says that he preserved his word. So we know that they're found in the Greek manuscripts, but it doesn't tell us which family of Greek manuscripts is the preserved Word of God, right? Just that in all of them together, we know the Word of God is preserved. Now, pure opinion is something like this. I don't think men should wear pink shirts, all right? But I know some pastors that have preached such things, and I wear a pink shirt just to make them upset, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because you know what? Their opinion is not binding upon me, nor is it upon you. And so categories of Christian truth. So a few weeks ago, we had a Sunday called Calvary Christian, what? School or Christian Education Sunday. 
we saw in the scriptures that parents have a divine command to bring their children up in the nurture, in the admonition of the Lord. Can I preach, thus saith the Lord? Absolutely. All right. Then some logical conclusions based upon that clear command. All right. So you need to bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. In the home, you need to be teaching the scriptures. And you need to follow up with your children's education, what they learn in school. But then we applied it to such things as homeschooling, uh, even public school, and of course, Christian school. But now when it came down to that, uh, we're in category three, and sometimes maybe even category four. Um, it, it came across my ears this week that um, not too far away from here, there's a pastor who is laying it on thick to his people that they must homeschool, and if they don't, it's sin. Did thus say the Lord, you must homeschool? No, all right? So, we have to be careful, and I was trying to be careful during that message, that when we moved from the biblical command of bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, then when we came to the application, it's to be careful to say, now, God didn't say that it has to be done this one way. How many of you remember that message now that I'm talking about it? All right? And I think that that's the way, if you remember it, that it was presented. All right? So we have to be careful that when Pastor Brent says something, that you know that it's just his speculation, his opinion. And to be honest with you, it's not binding on you. Right? Okay. Um, but the, the sad reality is that there are many pastors who are not faithful with the Bible and they will take their own opinion or their speculations and they will say, and God says, did he really say? All right? Well, no. And so that's why I say there are categories of Christian teaching. So maybe this will help you as you listen to a sermon, you're going to say, ah, that's directly biblical. I must believe this. I must put that into practice in my life. Or, man, I've never seen that before. I can see where pastor gets that. I understand. I agree with that. Or, eh, okay, we're in the same camp, we're in the same ballpark, but we're not cheering for the same team here, okay? You might be going for the Red Sox, I might be going for the A's when it comes down to that, okay? That's my opinion, all right? And uh, so you've heard me jest and tease with you before about sports teams, all right? Um, but that's just pure opinion and speculation. So we have to be careful when we do these things. All right, so let's look here at some scriptures 
that might help you understand something. So let's take our Bibles and go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. So 2 Timothy comes before uh, Titus and Philemon or Hebrews. So if you find Hebrews, go back about three books. 2 Timothy 3.16. So right now what I'm going to give you are some categories of biblical truth, things you must believe, or things that you must practice. These are direct statements from God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So some of the Bible is God's Word. Is that a right statement? No, that would not be a correct statement. How much of the Scripture is inspired by God? All. The Bible contains the Word of God. Is that a correct statement? It is the Word of God. All right? So, to believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that's what we must believe. Let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So is this a correct statement? The Bible is a man-made book. Is that correct? No. Now, did God use men to write the Bible? Yes. But where did men get the words? They got them from God as He inspired them. By the way, uh, the Greek word behind inspired means God breathed. God spoke it out. He used His breath to speak the words. And then we tell, we're told here how we came to have the Scripture, 20 says it's not private interpretation. And this is the fun one. When you're witnessing, many times, uh, people will say something like this to you. Well, that's just your opinion. All right? And so what I like to do is I like to turn my Bible around if they don't have it, and I will point to the verse and I'll say, what does this mean? Read this right here. They'll read it. I'll say, now, what does it mean? Well, what you said. Okay, well, then it's not my own personal interpretation. Now, I noticed uh, for just a few minutes, Mr. Maddish took in Sunday school to introduce the, the topic of man today. And um, we're living in a world which even language is shaking, all right? Um, did you know that before Congress, there's a piece of legislation 
uh, that they want to introduce as a law. It's, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But just to show you what, what could happen in the nation, it's already happened in California. But uh, the word mother and the word father are words of discrimination. Mother is birthing person now. Okay? Because birthing person can include a transgendered man who gives birth. All right? So what I'm trying to tell you here is this. When God breathed out every word of the Bible, then words mean something. And you cannot change the definition of that word without changing Scripture. Here's why this is important in our society. As we go about trying to govern ourselves, we cast away the plain meaning of a word and we change it to something else. We change it to what we want it to be instead of what it means. Well, now, instead of having a universal set governing document that everybody can go to and understand what it means, now we have to go to the arbitrator of who tells us what they think it says. And so we don't have a governing document that governs us, so we will end up in problems in our country governing ourselves because we're throwing away the common sense meaning of words. And so, yes, words do mean something. I remember several years ago, I was working with uh, Dave Shoemate, who's now uh, down at IBC in Arizona, stands for International Baptist College, and uh, Craig Hartman. And these are two brothers in Christ. They're not pastors, but they're lawyers. And they would come to the uh, annual board meeting um, of a group that I was part of, and uh, they would help us draft biblical press releases and statements that we would put out. And um, so sometimes you would submit something, and it would come back to you, scratch, 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 scratch. And you're like, huh, what do I do? What word should I use instead? All right. And so then there would be a little note off to the side explaining, or then when you would work together in committee with them, this is the word that you need to use in this text. And so sometimes you don't think that prepositions actually matter, but they do. All right. And um, so it came down to things like that. And so the word of God, every word is inspired. And thus says the Lord. And so the words mean something. The doctrine is clear because of the words. All right, now let's look at the preservation of the Bible. Let's go to Matthew 24 for just a moment. When I was in college, I did uh, two outreaches in Greenville and one in Clemson. Uh, in Greenville on Friday night, I would uh, go and try to help the rescue mission to get the men uh, off the streets and into the rescue mission so they could hear the preaching of the word. And um, I remember one night encountering a man who was, uh, well, pretty wet behind the ears. Let's just put it that way, all right? 
And as I started sharing scripture to him, then he would quote one back to me from memory. And uh, he won, by the way, all right? He knew more scripture than I did because I think he had probably been witnessed to a thousand times and he knew all the scriptures. Um, but yet, God needed to work in his heart. Well, the other extension on Saturdays was to go down to Clemson University uh, in the fall is when we did this. And we would uh, try to witness to the college students that were on the streets. And um, one of the things that you would hear them do would be to echo their professors. And one of the echoes that would come back was, well, the Bible is so full of mistakes and it's just been passed down from generation to generation and copyists have made mistakes and then that mistake was copied and then the next guy made, so now you've got mistake after mistake. And so you just can't even trust the Bible, all right? So what they're trying to say and to pair it back is the Bible's not preserved. You can't trust it. But now what does Jesus say? Matthew 24, look with me at verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my what? Words shall not pass away. Psalm um, 119, thy word, O Lord, is settled forever in heaven. God has preserved his word. So preservation means that God has protected his word. So that what I'm up here today preaching and sharing with you, categories of Christian teaching, I can say, thus says the Lord. He has inspired his word. He has preserved his word. I can preach that to you with absolute confidence because God has superintended the process of preservation. He's kept his word intact. And so we have it today just as he intended us to have it. All right, now let's move to column two and look at some logical conclusions. Let's use Baptist distinctives as our example. All right, let's go to John chapter three and look at verse 23. All right, in John chapter 3, verse 23, um, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist and the fact that he was baptizing. So we read this in verse 23, and John also was baptizing in a neon near Salem because there was what there? Much, how much water? Much water. Okay? And they came and they were baptized. So now, as far as I know, Christian denominations want you to be baptized. Some do it when you're a baby and they baptize you then. Uh, some do it when you're a child. And as we practice it from the Bible... You're baptized as an adult, but after you've come to belief in Christ, we call it believer's baptism. But now, even in believer's baptism, some will pour water over your head and let it run down your, your face and so forth. Others will sprinkle water on you. But as Baptists, you've seen in the last month or so, we dunk them, right? Now, why do we dunk them? All right, why do we immerse them? Well, for example, from John 3.23, 23, 
would you need much water just to have a sprinkling service? Logically, no. All right? Logically, you need much water if you're immersing someone. All right? Let's also go over to Acts chapter 8. All right, Philip the Evangelist is led of the Holy Spirit to go witness to a government official from the country of Ethiopia. This man had come to the city of Jerusalem for a religious holiday. He was what was known as a God-fearer, one who respected God, would not worship the pagan gods nor the idols. And so he came to see if he could find something about the true God. He was in the city of Jerusalem. He picked up a copy of the book of Isaiah. He's reading. He doesn't understand And the Spirit of the Lord tells Philip uh, to go near to his chariot and to preach the word of God to him. So verse 30 of Acts chapter 8, And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understand what thou readest. He said, How can I except some man should uh, show me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb is dumb before his shear, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. All right, so that was their text. That's what they read. He didn't understand it. So Philip begins to explain it to him, and um, So the eunuch or the government official answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. Look at verse 35. And then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and did what? Preached Jesus to him. So he was explaining that Isaiah was talking about Jesus. So he's hearing the good news about how one is saved by belief. So now they're going down the road just a little bit further. And verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? In other words, what would prevent me from being baptized? Well, verse 37, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what has to come first? Belief. All right, so this is why we call it believer's baptism. You must believe first. Once you believe, then you can be saved. But as they're going down the road, they're probably at the Gaza Strip, That's desert. Do you think he's probably carrying two or three canteens of water? Probably. Do you think it could have been simple for Philip to say, do you have any water in that canteen? I could sprinkle you. Welcome to the Christian faith, brother. Do you have have a second canteen of water? Because I'm going to pour a little bit out from this first one over your head. Welcome to the faith, Christian brother. No, they, they stood in water. All right. Why stand in water? Well, to go down into the water and to come up out of the water. Now, the mode of baptism. 
Thus saith the Lord, you must be immersed. Does it say that in the scripture? No, but as a Baptist, I strongly hold to that. I teach that from logical conclusions from the word of God. It's not a jump and a leap of faith or a leap in logic to get there. It's clearly taught. Why am I not worshiping down the road today where miracles can happen? A good pastor friend of mine in the community put up on Facebook about four months ago a before and after picture of a miracle. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want to be unkind. I guess that could have been a miracle. But to me, that was a simple rash that maybe could have gone away after an hour after the irritant was removed. Could be that. All right. So, let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13 and look at verse 8. So now we're looking at logical conclusions. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. Charity or love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fall or fail, actually. Uh, Whether there be tongues, they shall cease, and whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. The Apostle Paul is telling the church in Corinth that speaking in tongues, it's going to cease, it's going to stop. So why don't I, as a Christian, speak in tongues? I know that my grandmother uh, went to an Assemblies of God church, very sincere woman. Um, she would not speak in tongues under her own pretense. She wouldn't make it up. And she felt as if she was a second-class Christian because she never had the Spirit come upon her to speak in tongues. Now, I'm just telling you what my grandmother felt. And uh, this then began to drive a wedge of doubt in her faith whether she was really saved or not. Some Assemblies of God, some Pentecostal churches teach that the initial physical evidence of salvation is that you speak in tongues and that you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. Now, that's not all, that's some. And that was my grandmother. And my parents had to walk her through Scripture and show her why that was not so and why and how you know that you're saved. Well, today, um, I'm not a Pentecostal. Now, they're brothers. I'm not saying anything that they're unsaved, all right? I'm just saying I don't believe biblically that speaking in tongues is for today because I believe it has ceased. And that's a logical conclusion from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. So as we now move further away, I'm going to say certain things to you like this. Meeting, meeting, yeah, eating meat is a sin. Matter of fact, you can't even be a vegetarian, you need to be a vegan. Because if you're not a vegan and you're eating animals, 
or the animal products, or if you're eating meat, then you're sinning. Okay? Now, let's go over and look at a, an example of this in our third column, which is speculations. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. All right, here's culturally what's going on. Um, the pagan temples had animal sacrifices. The meat that was presented to the god, there was so much of it that the priests couldn't eat it all. So they thought, well, what better way to make some money than to take it down to the meat market and sell it? And so that way, we're, we're doing, you know, two for one here, right? We're able to present it to our God, and then we're able to make some money off of it. Now, some Christians could go down to the meat market and buy the meat, the choicest cut of carne asada. Maybe it was already trimmed tri-tip, all right? And uh, they had no problem taking it home and saying a prayer to Jesus of, thank you for my tri-tip. Yeah. All right? But then some other Christians were like, how could you? That was meat that was dedicated to a false god. How can you eat such a thing? I, no, Really? And so there was this struggle, there was this conflict in the church. So, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that not, um, now we know that uh, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but what? Love edifies. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing as he ought yet to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now let's go down to uh, verse 8. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So, are you going to be a better Christian because you're a meat eater? No. Are you a worse Christian because you're not a meat eater. No. All right? So just because of your dietary practice, one way or the other, you're not a better Christian. Now, how many of you ever heard recently of this thing going around in evangelical circles called the hallelujah diet? Anybody heard of that? Okay. Um, how many of you heard of the Daniel diet? All right? And so sometimes a pastor will get up and uh, he will preach the hallelujah diet. You do this diet and you're going to be the picture of health. Or if you do the Daniel diet, you're going to be obeying scripture and you're going to be so much better. Column three, speculation. You don't know. You can't prove that. There's no way. And so early Christians dealt with this from the very inception of the church. Um, so there were meat eaters and there were those that were not meat eaters. All right? So this is just pure speculation on your dietary choices. 
We don't want to go back to the Old Testament law and say we can't eat pork. I'm sorry. I love my bacon. Okay? Now, if I'm going to have over a Jewish friend that's a believer, I may not want to serve pork chops for dinner. All right? Because that might be offensive to him as a brother in Christ and as a Jew. So my love for him will take that into consideration. Um, By the way, um, some Arabic, okay, brothers and sisters in the Lord from Arabia, they abstain from eating meats or they abstain from having pork products, all right? Uh, Even gelatin, is it jello, is made from pork. They, They won't go there. And so, Lord bless them. That's what their conscience tells them to do. But Paul says you're not a worse Christian, you're not a better Christian. So if you think this is going to do something for you one way or the other to make you become a better Christian or a better person, well, then that's just pure speculation. So let me ask you this question. Are you going to be radically changed spiritually if I were to tell you today that the church started on the day of Pentecost? Does that help you? Okay, it could logically as being a Baptist and looking at Baptist distinctives, but could the church have started in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, I will build my church? Possible. So we have to be honest and say, well, that's speculation. We don't know. All right, now let's go over to Romans 14. Let's look at pure preferences. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. All right, so a little bit of the dietary thing there, but now specifically about holidays. The Jewish people would celebrate things like Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, um, and other things, Purim, Hanukkah. Do you keep all of those days? I know some Jewish Christians who do, and it's important to them, and they regard it unto the Lord. But typically, I don't celebrate those days. Do you celebrate Christmas? Do you celebrate your birthday? Do you celebrate New Year's Day? Do you celebrate Thanksgiving? What if your brother in Christ didn't want to celebrate Christmas? Because in his or her mind, that's pagan! You know, those Northern Europeans, they went around and they collected ivy and they used evergreens to worship their gods. No, I'm not going to go there. Christmas is, oh no, okay. 
Well, if that's what they firmly hold to in their conscience, and they hold that before the Lord, praise God. Let them have that opinion. Now, does that have any relevance or binding influence or impact upon us as a church? No, none whatsoever. Okay? And so if I were to stand up as a pastor and say, you must celebrate or you must not celebrate XYZ holiday. How did the apostle handle that in Romans chapter 14, verse 5? That's for you to decide between you and the Lord, not for a pastor to hand down to you and level it across the board and make it applicable for everybody. That's not how you do that, right? So this is what you do in your decision before the Lord. Now, in this word Baptist, does anybody know what the letter I represents or stands for? Individual soul liberty, all right? What I like to phrase it is this way, individual soul accountability. You may do something in your home that I would never do in my home. Because my conscience before God, I could not do that. All right? Let me give you an example. Growing up, I was taught that playing cards were of the devil. And the joker made fun of Jesus Christ. And then I met Christians who had playing cards. And I was like, oh, Really? And then I went to college, and they played Rook and Uno and Dutch Blitz. And I'm like, really? It's like one time my brother-in-law let it be known that he was from California, and a college girl thought, and she actually said this, and I thought you were a good Christian. (laughs) Okay, so it's like, Wow. All right, but you see, that's what I thought when I first came across that. And I thought you were a good Christian. But you play cards? <gasps> well, that was just purely a matter of family preference. And I came to find out that, well, we were one of the few families in the world who actually held to that. <laughs> okay? And so, these kind of things, we have to understand, these are just pure opinion and preference, and it's not, thus saith the Lord. It's just, says Pastor Snow, right? Or it just says, Pastor so-and-so. So be aware. When you're listening to a sermon, um, one man who taught pastors how to preach, his name was Haddon Robinson, he said, where a pastor gets into trouble is not what the text actually says, it's how he goes to apply it to the life, and that's where preaching becomes heresy, all right? So be careful on the applications um, that we don't elevate the opinions, the speculations of men to the same level as thus says the Lord. Now, with this in place, we're going to move forward into a couple of topics that we want to look at and then have a